Welcome to Critical Matters, a sound critical care podcast covering a broad range of topics related to the practice of intensive care medicine. And now, your host, Dr. Sergio Zanotti. Lung protective mechanical ventilation, including low tidal volumes and limitation of plateau pressures, has been the basis for treatment of patients with ARDS. The use of early neuromuscular blockers has been proposed in severe cases as an adjunct treatment to improve outcomes. The adoption of this strategy has been inconsistent despite a positive clinical trial published in 2010. In this episode of Critical Matters, we will discuss this topic in detail, considering the results of the recently published clinical trial, the reevaluation of systemic early neuromuscular blockade, or the ROSE trial. Our guest is Dr. Arthur Slutsky, a true world-class expert in ARDS. Dr. Slutsky is a scientist at the Keenan Research Center for Biomedical Research at St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto. He's the Keenan Chair in Medicine at St. Michael's Hospital and a professor in the Departments of Medicine, Biomedical Engineering and Surgery in the University of Toronto. Dr. Slutsky is a prolific investigator with an interest in ARDS. Specifically, he has focused on the area of ventilator-induced lung injury. His work established the concept of biotrauma and has helped advance our overall understanding of ventilator-induced lung injury and ARDS. It's a true honor and pleasure to have him on the podcast. Art, welcome to Critical Matters. Thanks very much, Sergio. Pleasure to be here. Looking forward to the next uh, little time while we chat. Excellent. So you recently wrote an editorial for the New England Journal of Medicine entitled Early Paralytic Agents for ARDS, Yes, No, and Sometimes. And I thought that maybe we could use this as a framework for our discussion and maybe start with the yes, which was, I mean, back in the 2010, when the IQRSS trial came out of France, you also had the opportunity to talk uh, to write an editorial for this study at the New England Journal of Medicine. And maybe at that time we were thinking that there might be potential benefits and outcomes of using early neuromuscular blockers. Could you kind of tell us what was the thought back then and maybe give us a synopsis of that study? Super. Maybe I'll start with a, a bit of background because I think that's what you're getting at. In other words, what's, what's the rationale for why the use of neuromuscular blocking agents might be beneficial? And I think it relates to what you said in the introduction, and that is there's a hypothesis that it could potentially uh, decrease uh, ventilator-induced uh, lung injury. So, you know, I think uh, ventilator-induced lung injury has has sort of grown in importance, if you like, over the last 20-plus years. I would say largely related to the study from the Argent investigators uh, published in 2000 in New England Journal, showing that 6 ml per kilo is better than 12 ml per kilo. And again, you sort of hinted at that. So we know that mechanical ventilation can cause iatrogenic lung injury, you know, and the forms are barotrauma, volutrauma, atelectrauma, and biotrauma with release of mediators. Uh, but d- despite that trial that was published in 2000, the mortality from ARDS remains high. And it's thought that some of that mortality, not all of it, but some of it may still be related to ongoing ventilator-induced lung injury, despite the use of so-called protective ventilation strategies. So that, that's sort of the, the, the rationale behind why when you might use neuromuscular blockers. So neuromuscular blockers could make it easier to help ventilate patients. Sort of an obvious thing they could do is decrease the oxygen cost of breathing. When people are, you know, have got respiratory failure, they're working very hard, their respiratory muscles actually can use a fair bit of the cardiac output and the oxygen consumption. It can d- decrease excessive muscular activity um, and then get have 
less patient ventilator dyssynchrony, sort of the patient fighting uh, the ventilator. So less dyssynchrony would be a major potential mechanism. It can help increase oxygenation. There's some studies that suggest that if you use neuromuscular blockers, oxygenation goes up a little bit. And there's a little bit of evidence that uh, cisaticurium, which is the, the neuromuscular blocking agent that was used in both these studies, um, has some anti-inflammatory effects. I don't think that last this last one is is likely to be the case, uh, even though we published a paper on this a couple of few years ago. But you know, if it, if it was an anti-inflammatory effect, you'd think things like steroids, etc., would be be you know better than than uh, So, in terms of the background for the Acura study, uh, this study was the first author was uh, Papazian uh, from uh, from France. And his group has done a lot of work uh, on neuromuscular blocking agents and had done a lot of work uh, on neuromuscular blocking agents. They published an, an early study before they started the one that was published in 2010, and they showed that neuromuscular blocking agents could improve oxygenation. The first author, I think, was Gagne, um, also from, from that group. Um, and they also had a very interesting study. The, the first author was Forel, F-O-R-E-L. This was a small randomized control study showing that if they gave 48 hours neuromuscular blocking agents, uh, it decreased biotrauma. There was a decrease in, in um, bronchoalveolar lavage levels of a couple of cytokines, I think IL-8, and also in a number of serum cytokines. I think it was IL-6 and IL-1-beta. Uh, so, so that suggests that there may be because that's what you'd expect if, uh, the, if, if, if the agent decreased biotrauma, that you have a decrease or a change in these in these uh, mediators. So that was, I think, the background to why Papazian and colleagues sort of did the the study uh, called Acuresis, and uh, that's the one that was published in, in 2010. So just to briefly summarize it, it was a randomized controlled trial comparing 48 hours of cisaticurium to placebo in patients with ARDS who had a PF ratio less than 150. That's pretty important. So they're dealing with a sicker spectrum of uh, ARDS patients. Their primary endpoint was 90-day um, in-hospital mortality, and they said adjusted for some predefined covariates. Th this was a multi-center trial uh, published in about 20 French intensive care units. An important feature was the sedation practices. All patients were sedated heavily to a Ramsey score of uh, five or six, so six, I believe. And you'll see, I'll come back to that. That becomes potentially a really important point here. The control group and the active group um, were heavily sedated. Then they used uh, a bolus of cisaticurium and, and 48 hours of a continuous uh, infusion. They used a volume assist mechanical ventilation with small tidal volumes six to eight ml per kilo. And they used the low PEEP uh, protocol, PEEP FIO2 protocol, that was used in the original ARMA trial that I mentioned that was published in the New England Journal in, in 2000. And that actually, I'll come back to that point as well later. And they looked at side effects, including barotrauma. And of course, they looked at whether there was you know, muscle, muscle strength problems that occurred after the use of cystaticurine, because that's one of the major concerns that, that clinicians had in, in using it. Um, they had a sample size of about 400, somewhat under 400 patients. And as I said, the primary analysis was 90-day mortality 
after adjusting for a couple of uh, baseline covariates. So that, that was the, the sort of the, the outline of the studies, uh, study. Um, it was, uh, I think, a you know, well-carried-out study. Um, they, interestingly, as in, in all studies like this, they excluded a lot of patients. Uh, about 1,000 patients were excluded. That's not unexpected. There's all sorts of reasons why patients might be excluded. And in the end, they ended up randomizing uh, three to 400 patients. Uh, the median time from inclusion to, 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 to randomization was 16 hours. And uh, the main result was they found a significant decrease in mortality, 90-day mortality, of about absolute decrease of about 8%. Uh, 8%. And that, that was important. That's a, that's a big difference in uh, mortality, um, especially in patients who are receiving lung protective ventilation to, to start with. They had a couple of other interesting things, I think, that are worth pointing out. One was when they looked a little more detail, and uh, this in a little more detail, the beneficial effect was limited to patients with PF ratios less than 120. So between 120 and 150, absolutely no difference, less than 120 there was a big decrease in mortality. They also had more ventilator-free days, more organ failure-free days. Uh, interestingly, in the control group, they had a higher incidence of pneumothorax, which again suggests that the underlying mechanism was related to decreased ventilator-induced lung injury. And importantly, they, they didn't find any difference in ICU-acquired uh, paresis. So it didn't look like you know just 48 hours of paralytic agent was uh, sort of really bad in terms of uh, uh, muscle weakness. Two other important things that, that I, you know, I'll come to later on, and that is uh, almost half the patients were treated with the prone position. You know, the prone position, there was a study published in the New England Journal a few years ago uh, showing that the prone position markedly decreased mortality. And in, in Europe and in France in particular, the prone position is used a fair bit. That's different, interestingly, than is than is what is done in North America, and it may be something we want to chat about, Sergio. That how little it's used in 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 the United States. The second interesting part I thought in the results was if one looks at the Kaplan-Meier curves. If you look at the Kaplan-Meier curves in terms of mortality uh, from that 2010 study, um, here you have an intervention that's a, that's being given for 48 hours. And then the intervention is, I mean, the treatment is the same for both groups, but the difference in mortality doesn't occur until day about 18. So those Kaplan-Meier curves are spot on. They're just right on top of another, and they don't separate till 18 days, which is really, it's, 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 you know, it's hard to, it's hard, I find it hard to explain. In the editorial I wrote in 2010, I said, well, it could be related to biotrauma. We know that with biotrauma, you get the release of mediators. Those mediators go into the lung, they can cause injury, but more importantly, the mediators can get into the systemic circulation and cause end organ failure. And that, that end organ failure is going to take some days or some time after, after release to happen. 18 days, quite frankly, seem like a really long time, like it's really, really hard to, uh, to explain. So that was, that's a summary of what the, the study looked like. In terms of mechanisms, I think that uh, I sort of hinted at some of them uh, previously. I, I, you know, I thought that, and I think most people thought that the way this worked was by decreasing ventilator-induced lung injury, decreasing dyssynchrony, um, 
and also decreasing the the you know even though you're on a ventilator um, if you're not paralyzed um, you can generate large negative pressures that can cause large tidal volumes even though the, you set the ventilator to give you six ml per kilo but the patient's actually getting a lot more than six ml per kilo so it's thought that that was probably the mechanism that you know uh patients can double trigger so you have the cyst control set for six ml per kilo take patient gets a breath before the end of the breath they trigger another breath and they end up stacking breaths what's called breath stacking and you actually then can have a 12 ml per kilo or more and that that might then increase ventilator induced lung injury so that was that was the sort of a summary if you like of the brief summary of the, of the trial including some of the rationale for why it may why it may have worked and it's interesting art that uh, this is obviously almost a decade old but uh, even though this was positive the penetration of early neuromuscular blockers in practice is variable and it's something that we also see with prone positioning, as you mentioned, which is another story of getting people to practice based on the best available evidence. But clearly there were still a lot of concerns regarding safety. And as you mentioned, regarding the, uh, uh, the, 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 the targets for sedation that are currently being employed in the ICU, that I think there was enough clinical equipoise for, for a larger study trying to, to look into this. And I think that takes us to, to the ROSE uh, trial which is the recently published study that you also wrote an editorial. And could you tell us a little bit about uh, the ROSE study and what they did? And then maybe we can start exploring some of the differences between these two studies. Super, yeah, I will. And uh, you know, I do think the other reason that people were a bit skeptical was that point I mentioned about the Kaplan-Meier curve separating so late. Like, why did that happen? It, could it have been fluke alone? Who, who knows? So, so the ROSE study was uh, an NIH-sponsored trial, very well carried out uh, trial, um, comparing 48 hours of cystathecurium to placebo. Again, similar to the similar to the the accuracy study. It was carried out in 48 to 50 hospitals in the in the U.S. Um, it enrolled patients with uh, ARDS who had PF ratios again less than 150. So, so the same cohort that was uh, that was in the uh, the previous trial was a little different and included patients that tried to include patients earlier in the course. So patients were identified in the emergency department. So they were entered into the trial probably a little earlier than than patients would have been entered in in France in the in the accuracy study. Um, the, it, the important point here, one important point, is related to sedation. And in the neuromuscular blocking group study, the cystatocurium study, they again sedated to, they used heavy sedation to a Ramsey score of, of about uh, six. So it was very similar to the accuracy study. But the big difference was in the control, which was now light sedation, because that's how most of us now practice. We try to keep sedation as low as possible. That was different sort of 10 years ago. So that was one major difference between the studies. And then they used the same drugs, cystatocurium, the same dose. They used, um, in terms of the um, ventilation strategy, they used volume assist mechanical ventilation, tidal volume, again, of 6 to 8 ml per kilo, similar to the, to, to the French study and to the original Arsenet study. But what was what, another difference they had, though, in the protocols was they used the high PEEP protocol. 
if you remember in the in the accurate study they used the low peep protocol and the difference in peep levels is sort of three to four centimeters of water and by the way that may be actually important as we discuss things a, a little later on uh, they powered the study to a sample size of 1400 patients that's the advantage of, of you know the a lot of these um, american studies like really large sample size which is i think really important and they had a stopping rule for futility or efficacy in other words they had a rule they had a data safety monitoring board that would look at the uh, the evidence all the way through the trial and at some point based on these rules say you know what this is so likely to be positive we're going to stop early or it's so likely to be futile that we're just going to call the study there's no use entering more patients because we know it's going to be futile so that was that was the trial um, the results, um, interestingly, the trial was stopped early for futility after about a thousand patients were enrolled. Um, uh, interestingly here, they screened about 5,000 patients to randomize that 1,000. As I said, that's not unusual. But I thought what was interesting was about 650 of the patients were excluded because they were already receiving neuromuscular blocking agents. So despite the fact we talked about neuromuscular block agents weren't used routinely um, by all physicians, a fair number were still using it. You know, uh, uh, 650 were excluded because of that. Uh, they also looked at 90-day mortality. And at the end of the study, the mortality in the two groups was virtually identical at about 42%. Like, again, the Kaplan-Meier curves are essentially lay on top of one another. And they did some sensitivity analyses looking at PF less than 120, no difference, all sorts of other things. Absolutely cannot find no, no difference between the two, uh, the two groups. They also, uh, when they looked at the uh, long-term outcomes, included health-related outcomes up to one year, they were the same in both groups. Again, no increase in, in muscle weakness. That wasn't a concern. Um, and basically showed this is a very, very, very negative study, quite frankly. A couple of aspects of the results I should highlight that the, uh, in this study, uh, the prone position was used only at about 12 or 13% in both groups. You know, that's versus about 45% in accuracies. So that's a pretty big, pretty big difference. Uh, the peep level in this study on average was about 13 centimeters of water, and that compared to about 10 in Papazian. So the higher PPFI2 table did lead to higher PEEP levels. In terms of complications, they actually had somewhat higher complications, cardiovascular complications in the cis-adic group, um, in increased serious cardiovascular events. These were small numbers, but they were statistically significant, so maybe there was something going on. And as I said, ICU-acquired weakness was similar between the two groups. So there you have two, I think, very well carried out studies. Um, one positive, one very, very negative, as I said. No matter how they looked, sliced the data, they couldn't get a, they couldn't find a positive uh, result. Actually, there's one positive result uh, looking at, um, um, I forgot the exact result, but it was, it was likely due to chance alone. I think it had to do with, with race, in, in, but it was by chance alone. So you have two well-done studies that are give different, quite different results. And I think that obviously this is not an uncommon uh, occurrence in medicine and certainly in science. I think one of the big uh, 
issues that a lot of scientists outside of medicine have also uh, commented recently is the inability to replicate findings of positive studies in other fields as well, no, which uh, I, I think raises another question that we can maybe t t touch at the, at the end. But going back to the neuromuscular blockers and ARDS uh, uh, conversation, as a consumer, if I were a patient, uh, Art, and I know you can't really compare like this, but you have four groups, right? The two control groups were different in terms of how they got ventilated and how they got sedated. And the two intervention groups were a little bit different in terms of the use of prone positioning and how much PEEP they got, but the sedation and the neuromuscular blockers were very similar. And overall, I think that in general, we could argue that even though they use different definitions, that they were all uh, patients on the sicker spectrum of, of ARDS. But when you look at the raw mortalities, it seems that the best group to be in was heavy sedation, lower PEEP, and early neuromuscular blockers, which is the Papazian intervention trial um, with a 30% mortality. Any comments on, on that? Yeah, I, I think it's very, very difficult um, to compare mortality among studies because subtle differences in the entry criteria can, can really uh, make a big difference. And in this case, for example, the, uh, the Rose study, as I said, included patients, excuse me, included patients uh, that came from the emergency department very early. They included patients very early. If you think about it, some a number of those patients who were included early, potentially in the if they had been in the in the accuracy study, they could have died before even being randomized because they weren't you know they weren't included as early. So I I just think you have to be very careful in terms of comparing the data, the mortality, the absolute mortality data. Um, between studies, even in the same, even in the same center at times, but now we're talking across two different continents. We're talking a decade apart, where all sorts of things could have changed. So I, I, I think I'd be very careful about taking the absolute uh, mortality differences, um, and and saying that you know they hold sway. It's 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 interesting to think about, you know, what the mechanism might be. For example, in some studies I've seen, the entry criteria, the, the, and I don't think that was the case here, but the, if, age, if the age cutoff is just slightly different, that can have a huge impact on outcome. Could be, the, the other reason could be, if you look at the number of patients, for example, who, um, who were entered because of trauma versus sepsis, you know, the mortality between ARDS patients with trauma versus sepsis can be a factor of three. So there's lots of things you have to bear in mind, and I think you have to be very, very careful with those kind of comparisons. Fair, and I think that that that's why I always, I mean, it, you have to look at these all these these different aspects, and I think it's not so simple just looking at what the the result was in the abstract. But one of the things that that I think is very interesting, and you talked about in the editorial you wrote for the Rose study, was uh, this this idea of reverse triggering, and uh, yeah. it. Previously, obviously, you've published a lot, and even, I mean, when we were thinking about uh, the, uh, the accuracy trial, we're thinking of the traditional injuries such as um, atheletic trauma, barrel trauma, and biotrauma, and the dyssynchrony driving these. But could you tell us a little bit about how you think that this uh, might be play a role in terms of what is reverse triggering and why maybe the levels of sedation had an impact on this? Sure. So this is, first of all, just to be clear, this is just a hypothesis. And um, 
you know, uh, when the editor asked me to write the editorial, he said, you know, write something controversial that, that could potentially explain the difference between the trials. And, and I was, you know, we were given 700 words to do this, uh, Jesus Falar and I, when we, when we did it. So you're sort of limited. But I, but I think in terms of reverse trick, and we thought about what, what's, what's, why, what is there about the two trials that's different? And in fact, in the editorial, we had a table that summarized some of the things. And we thought, which of these could potentially cause the differences we saw? So, you know, there's a few things that I can talk about besides reverse triggering, but let me, let me start there. So, first of all, um, reverse triggering is an interesting phenomenon. It was only just described about five or six years ago um, in, by a French group. And the idea here is that patients who are on the ventilator, sedated, the ventilator provides a breath, and that by whatever the mechanism, the mechanism is not entirely clear, that causes a reflex phenomenon that leads to another, for the, to the patient then initiating another breath. So that's why it's called reverse trigger. And normally the, the patient goes first, triggers the ventilator. Here the ventilator goes first and triggers the, the, the patient to take a breath. And if those breaths occur pretty close in time, before exhalation has occurred, you can get, you can get uh, an increase in, uh, you can get breath stacking, basically. So it's an interesting phenomenon. And there's a couple of, uh, you know, uh, I think critical issues about reverse triggering that made us think that this might be part of the explanation. First of all, it's probably more common than we think it is. It's not easily often picked up at the bedside because the ventilator doesn't often tell you that there's in fact been um, breath stacking or that uh, this has happened. So it's not picked up clinically, partly because just recently described, patient ventilator symphony is sort of a difficult thing to pick up at the bedside often anyway, unless you look for it very carefully, unless you've got an esophageal balloon down or uh, measuring uh, electroactivity of the diaphragm, it can be difficult to pick up. Um, but most importantly, I think, and the thing that made us think about this as being the more, most likely cause is that as opposed to other forms of asynchrony, you know, if patients have, are fighting the ventilator, we try to do a lot of things, make sure they're comfortable, make sure this, that. And if that doesn't work quite often, the reflex is let's give more sedation. Let's, let's, in other words, I guess we're thinking, um, give more sedation, decrease ventilatory drive of the patient, and that somehow that means that the ventilator and the patient will be better synchronized. It turns out, and the data on this are not strong yet because this is so new, that increased sedation actually appears to increase the probability of uh, reverse triggering. Increase the probability, likelihood of reverse triggering. In fact, reverse triggering has been described in a brain dead patient. So it's like you don't... It, somehow this, there's a reflex that somehow by increased sedation leads to increased, uh, increased uh, reverse triggering. So if you take that all together, think about the two studies now. First study, the Acrisis study. You've got both groups treated with heavy sedation. The control group, because of that heavy sedation, let's say gets a lot of reverse triggering, a lot of therefore get a lot of um, um, over distension, ventilator-induced lung injury, increased mortality. The, uh, the treatment group in that study gets neuromuscular blocking agents. So even though the patient you know, is, is trying to, to take a breath, because they're paralyzed, they don't take another breath. So the paralytic agents decreases ventilator-induced lung, decreases over distension, decreases ventilator-induced lung injury, 
decreases biotrauma, decreases death. That's the ACRA study. The ROSE study, however, they used heavy sedation in the, in the treated group, but the control group had low level of sedation. So if you think about this, if this mechanism, if this hypothesis is correct, that group wouldn't have as, nearly as much reverse triggering. So that patient, that group would not have much of an increase in mortality. And the group that had the potential for, for had the higher sedation were given neuromuscular blocking agents. So you wouldn't see a difference. So you now look at this, these two groups, no difference in mortality. So this could theoretically explain why you have a difference in mortality, why you have a difference in mortality in the first study, but not in the second study. Does that make sense? It does, and I think it's something just like you said. I mean, it's a it's a hypothesis, but I think it's always good to try to understand it and think about this because it also gives us, I think, insight into the pathophysiology of our patients that might be very useful in understanding what we're doing with individual patients at the bedside a lot better. What about Art the uh, the the comment um, or the difference in terms of the the use of prone positioning? I think that this is something that is a recurrent theme in ARDS. For example, when people explore uh, studies that look at ECMO, the, uh, a lot of people would argue, well, if you're not using um, the things that have already been proven to make a difference uh, routinely, how do we know that's the right patient selection? And I think that here, like you mentioned, 40 versus 12% seems like a considerable difference in terms of, of the utilization of prone positioning. How do you think that impacts the results and what are your comments on this? Okay, so so there's two. I guess there's two ways, two comments I want to make. One is, I think that North Americans, especially, do not use the prone position sufficiently. You know, and I feel very strongly about that. I'm not sure why that is. Um, maybe because there hasn't been an NIH-sponsored study that showed it. But but you know, the data are pretty strong that the prone position decreases mortality. And I hear quite often that people say, well, you know, or you know, it's it's too hard to do. It's too complicated. You know, I, I don't buy that. I mean, yes, the first time it's a little complicated. You certainly need logistics. You have to get the nurses, the RTs working together, but it's not so complicated. And, and if you look at the decrease in mortality, it's spectacular in that study that was published in the New England Journal. So it should be used more. And I'm not sure why that, it's a funny how, you know, we talk about evidence-based medicine, but there's many examples of where the evidence is there and yet people don't use it or vice versa. And this is one of those cases where the evidence is pretty strong but for some reason, North Americans don't use prone. So that, that's a bit of a separate issue, but I think that's really important. And, and to your point, I think it's you know almost a crime to put someone on ECMO without having tried the prone, for ARDS, for, if you have not having tried the prone position first. I mean, if, if someone says, well, you know, um, prone is too difficult to do, well, yeah, compared to ECMO, like it's not even close. It's not even close. So I think, I think it, sh it has to be in the algorithm to use before one uses uh, ECMO, uh, no question in my mind. So that that's sort of my hobby horse. But can can it explain the difference in the in the two studies? Well, in the in the discussion of the Rose study, the authors suggested that that what might be one of the potential mechanisms. But you know, for that to be potentially one mechanism, that would mean that neuromuscular blocking agents would have to be more effective in patients who are prone than supine. I mean, that's what they sort of say. They, you know, they, they say, well, there's, you, there, there might be some mechanism, but I, like I, I don't know. It just doesn't, doesn't 
I, I don't see, I don't, I can't think of a really good mechanism by which that would be. If you, if you might think it's the, in the other direction, in fact, because when you go prone, you've got more homogeneous ventilation. As far as I know, there's no increase in patient ventilator asynchrony that could make them more susceptible to, therefore, be benefited by, by paralytic agents. So even though that's a theoretical possibility, I don't, I, I, I don't, I don't, I haven't seen any evidence that would make me think that's a likely possibility for the difference. As I said, that's one of the differences in the study. So you could say that's, that's a possible explanation. Can't argue against that. But I could also say, well, this, you know, neuromuscular blocking agents only work in Europeans in Europe as opposed to Americans in North America. Well, yeah, that, I mean, that the data fit that perfectly, but that's not a very satisfying hypothesis to me from a physiologic perspective. So I, I don't think that it's the difference in prone position, although that, you know, you'd have to say that is a possibility. I don't think that uh, that explains the difference between the two, the two studies. But I do think that, uh, like you mentioned, a, a clear take-home message unrelated to neuromuscular blockers is that we probably should be using prone positioning more in patients who have severe RDS because there is data to support it. 100%, 100%. By the way, there are, there, there are other potential mechanisms that could explain this besides the reverse triggering. So I'm not, I'm not sort of um, saying, oh, this, our hypothesis is correct. I, you know, I don't know if it is or not. You know, one, one potential mechanism I think is plausible relates to the difference in people in the PEEP used in the two groups. You know, there, there was a, a, an interesting study by Moray uh, in the Blue Journal within the last couple of years where they used rabbits, uh, pigs, and they had some human data. And, and they hypothesized that in patients with ARDS, you have adlactatic lung regions in the dependent zones, and that that impairs the transmission of the negative pleural pressure swings. So that could lead to greater dependent lung stretch. So down, down in the bottom, because of the, this impairment, you have more lung stretch and more ventilator-induced lung injury. So if you use PEEP, you would open up some lung units and you'd mitigate this injury by decreasing the atelectasis and also by decreasing respiratory, by reducing respiratory drive. And they actually showed this in animal studies that when they used low versus high PEEP, the high PEEP group had less lung injury in the dependent zones, which I, you know, I thought was, uh, which was uh, pretty interesting. Now, they used PEEP levels in the animal studies between 5 for low and 15 for high, much bigger difference than, than in the ACRIS study and the ROSE study. Uh, and in fact, you know, the difference between PEEP levels in the ACRIS and ROSE were about 3 centimeters of water, not a, not a huge number, quite frankly. Um, but, you know, it's possible that that's a mechanism. Having said that, uh, you know, you're familiar, I'm sure, with the ART trial that was published in JAMA mm -hmm. two years ago. And, uh, you know, I don't want to take credit for that trial, even though it's called the ART trial, especially since it was a negative trial. If it was a, hey, it was a positive trial, I take credit for it. I'd say they named it after me. But it was a negative trial. And it was, you know, it was one of those recruitment and high peep, and then the mortality went in the opposite direction. And I think that actually, interestingly, it's possible that double triggering desynchrony could explain partially those results. If you look at the ART trial, if you look at the um, supplements, they have some. They have at least one figure showing um, double triggering 
that occurred, not necessarily reverse triggering, but double triggering. So that can, that can occur. In any event, I think that, you know, it's a plausible physiological explanation that higher PEEP might decrease ventilator induced lung injury. And, and again, if, it, if you decrease ventilator induced lung injury in the control and neuromuscular blocking group, maybe that there's nothing to add from neuromuscular blocking agents. So that could explain why the ROSE trial um, was negative. You know, so I think higher PEEP, I think is a very, uh, to me, is physiologically more plausible than saying the prone position is different between the two. And there might be some interaction in prone and neuromuscular blocking agents. So clearly, I mean, there's a lot of uh, potential explanations, but I think that um, the preeminent role of uh, lung injury induced by the ventilator is always present, right? It's something that we, I think we finally have, have understood. It's the only thing that really has moved ARDS care forward significantly and consistently. And there's still a lot of things that we need to, to, to learn. But based on these two studies and where we are today, Art, what would you think is the, the current status of early neuromuscular blockers in ARDS in terms of general recommendations initially, and then maybe how you, you would apply it to your own clinical practice? So I think uh, I'll give you how I, I think it should be applied. And so I think that's what's changed for me in thinking about it. You know, prior to the ROSE trial being published, I would say that all patients with PFs less than, let's say, 120, um, you should try in the first couple of days, you should, you should use neuromuscular blocking agents. I would have thought that that's, you know, there's sufficient evidence to show that now, I don't think that's the case. I don't. I don't think it's, when I say it's not the case, it shouldn't be used routinely in every patient just because their PF is low. I think that uh, it, it should be used, should be considered for patients where there's a physiologic rationale. So tailor it to the patient. So, for example, if the if you see the patient has say dyssynchrony and then it's double triggering, well, to me, and you can't, and you've tried other things to change that and it hasn't worked. That to me would be a no-brainer to try there. If the patient has, you know, along with um, Laurent Burchard and, and Antonio Pacente, we wrote an article a couple of years ago in the Blue Journal on, on self-inflicted lung injury, that if patients have high respiratory drive, even breathing spontaneously, they could actually cause lung injury to themselves, you know, sort of ventilator-associated lung. It's not it's ventilation-associated lung injury rather than ventilator-associated lung injury. So if patients have high respiratory drive, which they often have in the first, you know, couple of days of diagnosis, and they're 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 either got a large, uh, you know, p point one pressure in one hundred milliseconds, or looking at accessory muscles, looks like they're have very high drive. I think in those patients, it makes sense to use more neuromuscular blocking agents. So I think it's it's more thinking about the specific patient thinking about what physiology might be um, corrected by using neuromuscular blocking agents. As I said, that's different than it was in my mind a couple of years ago. And by the way, the other, the ROSE trial, the other advantage of the, the use, very useful bit of the ROSE trial that I think is important is that they showed that the long-term consequences in terms of, of muscle weakness just they, they couldn't pick it up. That doesn't mean it didn't happen, but it, it, was, it wasn't like it's a major, major issue. So that's how I would see using it. I mean, you know, if you looked at patients and they had a high dyssynchrony index, you know, there's something called the, um, I forgot what the exact term is, but basically there's been a couple of studies showing that if patients have uh, greater than 10% of breaths that are dyssynchronous with the ventilator, they have a higher mortality for whatever reason. They, 
studies haven't sorted out what the mechanism is. So those kind of patients, I think it makes makes uh, a lot of sense to to use neuromuscular blocking agents. By the way, you know, one thing we hadn't talked about uh, for for a difference between the two studies, this could be due just to chance alone. You know, one study was less than 400 patients. The other one was 1,000 patients. So the ROSE trial was 1,000 patients. Sometimes, you know, the, if you study enough patients, you, you get you, you get this closer to the, the the truth, if you like. And smaller number of patients can be very very misleading. I don't know if you remember there was a trial, maybe ten or fifteen years ago, for TIFP for sepsis, and it was published in JAMA. It's actually a very instructive study to to pull out because it's something actually we you and I talked about just a few minutes ago, Sergio, and that is. You know, um, uh, sample size, et cetera, et cetera. So in this TIFB trial, they used TIFB for for sepsis, and they had a uh, they had a couple uh, they had a data safety monitoring board that looked at the trial halfway through. Halfway through the trial, roughly, the mortality rate in the TIFB group was about eight percent less than the control group. I'm talking about absolute decrease in mortality in sepsis. I mean, that's a huge difference. Like I'm making up the numbers roughly, but let's say 35 to 27%, something like that. And the p-value for that was 0 0.006. wasn't enough for them to stop the trial. They then continued the trial, and at that, they, they had enrolled about 800, 800 patients, so it wasn't small. They'd enrolled in, they then enrolled another 800 patients, and the trial was completely negative. In fact, mortality went in the opposite direction. So just think, in a sense, how scary that is. If that trial had been had been powered to 800 patients, we'd all be using TIFB for sepsis in all our patients. So it's possible that, and again, when you think about the fact that the Kaplan-Meier curves sort of separate only at 18 days, was that just a fluke? Was that study, you know, did it occur by chance alone? So, so I don't know the answer, but, but that's a possibility. And I think that... Um this leads me into a question I wanted to ask you, and, and Danny Kahneman, uh, who's a brilliant psychologist, who really was one of the fathers of the cognitive psychology, wrote a paper many years ago on the law of small numbers, arguing exactly that same thing, but in psychology, that we uh, that small numbers tend to overestimate, especially when there are positive results, and that it can lead us down the, the wrong road. And uh, we see this over over again in critical care when small studies are very positive, and everybody jumps on board. I think uh, we mo most recently have seen this with uh, uh, vitamin C and, uh, and other uh, cocktails for, for septic mm -hmm. shock. Uh, but really, we need larger tr studies uh, to, to get a better idea. But the question, I guess, leads to, I mean, you, you've done so many trials, Art. Do you think that the randomized clinical trial is the right tool? Or are we going to just keep seeing negative study tr after negative study? Well, I know there's there's a lot of people who are skeptical about randomized control trials. I happen to be a fan up to a point of randomized control trials. And by that, I mean, I think they provide the, the best level of evidence. And it's so hard to have to, to provide this level of evidence without doing a randomized control. And, and the reason is because you get rid of biases by randomizing. You know, if you don't randomize, no matter how many patients you include, you could have still the same bias in all cases. Now, that's not to say everything needs needs to be randomized control trial, but I think for things like this, when it's drugs like this, whether it's steroids or, I think that this is the only way to get the correct answer. 
Now, where, for example, where it's not necessary potentially is if you think about, um, you know, the, the study, the, the observation 35 years ago about auto peep in patients, you know, uh, with COPD. There's a study by Pepe Marini where they, they noticed that patients, uh, and I believe the two patients have COPD, that if they stopped the ventilator, there was decreased pressures in the chest. The patients who were hypotensive now were no longer hypotensive. Like, that's pretty dramatic. So, very dramatic. So, I think that sometimes the physiology is very blatant. But still, I think that the randomized controlled trial provides the strongest level of evidence and changes practice. We only have to look at um, the, Arginet, the first ARDSNET trial, how that has changed practice, how it's made us all believers that ventilator-induced lung injury is important. You know, I chaired a consensus conference in 1993 or so, and we published um, a paper in, uh, in uh, CHEST uh, to sort of summarize in the conference. And one of the suggestions we had at the time was we said, try to limit the plateau pressure to 35 centimeters of water because you might have lung injury if it goes higher than that. And you can't believe how much grief I got after that. People were not emailing me back then, mailing me, phoning me. How could you suggest that? That's crazy. And now, you know, if you, if you have a randomized control trial, you now have, I think, very good evidence. Now, there are other approaches of, of using large databases, using artificial intelligence to sort of analyze the data, but you're still left with, you know, if the patient, if, if you're analyzing patients who didn't, did not receive a certain therapy, you're going to use that. In the back of your mind is, well, why did that patient receive the therapy when the, the, the comparable patient didn't receive it? And could that explain the difference in outcomes? So I'm actually a fan to a certain point, but I think you have to ask well-asked questions. Like you have to have a very good hypothesis. It has to be done well. And I, ideally, you have big enough networks that can carry them out quickly, because that's another complaint about randomized control trials. They can take years, you know, and they then they only then you know um, include a small subset of potential patients, etc. That you know, generalizability may not be there, but I think when done well, and if you're lucky with the results, can have a huge impact. Excellent. So I think this is a great place to stop uh, with the discussion on ARDS. And one of the things we like to do, Art, uh, and the podcast is close with some questions that try to tap into the wisdom of our guest, not related to the topic. Would that be okay? Sure. I, again, I'm not sure about wisdom, but you can tap into my brain anyway. So the first question relates to books, and I wanted to know if there's any book or books that have influenced you significantly or book that you have gifted very often to others. So um, I would say um, there isn't sort of one book that stands out. I just uh, tell you about maybe one or two that I just read recently, and actually you, you triggered it, one of them with your, your, your point about Danny Kahneman. You know, there's a book or a couple of books by a guy named Richard Thaler, T-H-A-L-E-R. He won the Nobel Prize for Economics last year, two years, three years ago. Uh, one of the books is called Misbehaving. And what he talks about is the development of something called behavioral economics. So it sort of combines, if you like, psychology and economics. You know, traditional economics is based on the concept that we all act rationally. We always do the right thing that's rational. But, but as we know, humans aren't, aren't rational when it comes to decision-making. So th this, the, the, the whole field of behavioral economics, I think it's had an impact in a lot of ways, whether it be transplantation and pensions. You know, 
what do I mean by that? If you if you um, ask people to opt in to be an organ donor, you get much different results than if you if the people have to opt out to not be an organ donor. And some countries like Spain have I think it's Spain have uh, an opt out. So if you don't opt out and you die, they can take your organs for transplantation. And the rate of transplantation in, in these places is much higher. And that's just behavioral economics in a sense. Shouldn't matter whether it's opting in or opting out. It's the same decision, but somehow there's this inertia, and this book gets at that. And I think it's uh, it is very good. And in fact, in the UK, they started something called a nudge unit. That you know, uh, this guy Taylor obviously uh, not obviously also wrote a book called Nudge. So I thought that was an interesting book. And I the think other, the other book. Before you go you to that? your second book, Art, yeah, I just wanted to make a point, which I think is very important uh, on the on the Th Thaler's uh, whole concept, is that it applies tremendously to what we do in medicine, right? So, for example, this whole concept of decision architecture. If you write a protocol, and uh, if you ask, if you have to check something, it's less likely to happen than if you have to uncheck it if you don't want it to happen, right? So, if you want right. something to happen, exactly. you pre-check it in your protocol. And that's how you, you drive compliance. And I think that it also speaks to confirmation bias, right? How can you show the same study to a group of, of intensivists and half will say it's a positive study and the other half will say it's a negative study? It's the same results, right? It just confirming whatever they believed before the trial. Exactly. Exactly. That's where the Bayesian analysis comes out. But that's exactly right. Sorry to interrupt you. What was the second, the second yeah. book you were going to mention? The other book I thought I just finished a little while ago was I found a really interesting book called uh, B Bad Blood. It's uh, it's got a longer title, but it's Bad Blood, and it's by uh, someone by the name of John Carreyrou, who uh, is a journalist for the Wall Street Journal. And it's a it's about a biotech startup called Theranos that was founded by a woman by the name of Elizabeth Holmes, who, who quit Stanford, I think when she was about 20. And they supposedly had a technology that allowed one to do about 200 blood tests from a drop of blood sort of within an hour, like almost instantly. And this was a startup company. The company reached a valuation of about $9 billion, with a B, $9 billion. Holmes was worth on paper $4.5 billion, roughly. This was in, you know, in five or seven years. And it turns out the company didn't have anything special technology at all. Essentially, the whole thing was a scam that sort of engulfed Silicon Valley, lots and lots of smart people, Robert Murdoch, Rupert Murdoch lost $125 million. The board of this company had luminaries like Henry Kissinger, George Shultz, who's the Secretary of State, General James Mattis, um, a couple of senators, including Bill Frist, who was also a heart surgeon. And so just, again, a story about that impacts medicine, if you like, but she's now being sued and I guess goes to court in 2020, they said. But it was, very, it was just fascinating how so many people could be so fooled for so long. <laughs> Uh, and this woman who was worth four, on paper four and a half billion dollars three years ago is now worth zero. Zero. So also an, actually, an fascinating. It's a fascinating story. I did not read the book. I did see there's a documentary with the same name based on the book. Right. That's why it's coming out. I've seen that yet. Yeah. And uh, uh, but it's very interesting. The whole concept of fake it till you make it, or I guess till you go to jail, right? <laughs> but uh, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Exactly. But but I think it, again, speaks a, a lot to, I mean, how we behave in irrational ways and how uh, we, we, we think we make rational decisions, but yet we can be deceived both when we read papers or when we're, people are making these investments and probably 
there's a lot of that herd mentality. Well, if somebody else that's very smart is investing, why would I not invest, right? So if somebody else believes in something we see in medicine, I usually am more likely to believe it as well. So I think these are excellent books that we'll definitely put at the, at the show notes in case our readers, are, our listeners are interested in reading. The second question relates to something that you believe to be true that most other people don't believe to be true. Um, you know, I'm, I, I must tell you, I don't have I don't have such a truth, so I have to disappoint you there. Uh, you know, so one of my favorite mantras is, you know, make sure you love what you're doing. You know, and, and in medicine, we go into medicine because uh, hopefully because we love it. You know, I tell the residents, um, they ask, you know, how, you know, I want to, I want to be, you know, get into academic medicine. What do I have to do? I say, well, you know, don't look at it that way. Do what you love. I think that's that's really important. And part of that, doing what you love, from a leadership perspective, then is creating a culture in an organization that's that's um, that helps people to want to work together that sort of decreases competition the negative parts of competition so, you know some competition is very good and I must tell you I I um, I led the critical care division here for a number of years and I also it was vice president of research at the hospital when we rec- recruited people I have a, a sort of a saying that everybody knows me here knows and that is I, obviously, I'm looking for the smartest people. So I, I always go I recruit for brains, but I hire for personality. So I want to make sure that hire people who want to work together. Who because you, you think about it, when you go to work, you you spend more waking hours with uh, the people you work with than probably your family members. So you better want to work with them. They better want to be the kind of people who who help each other, who are collaborative leave into disciplinary teams and the like. So that's, you know, but I, I can't certainly say that that's not what other people believe. A lot of people believe that. Not necessarily, they don't necessarily practice it, but I think, you know, have, building the culture of an organization, making people want to happy, and then making sure you hire the right people, I think is really important. Well, and I think that that it's a very timely comment, especially, and I don't know, I mean, what the, the, the microcosmos in Canada right now is for medicine, but clearly in the United States, uh, a lot of burnout. It's a rampant problem, not only with young physicians, but also older physicians. And I do believe that it's not, it's not universal. There's plenty of people who really enjoy what they're doing, but maybe it, it, it goes art to really what people don't believe in is that they, they don't believe in being honest with themselves and really identifying what are the things that really cause them pleasure, that really cause them pride, and focus on that. There's always things that you can complain about, but if you are focusing on the things that you really enjoy and that really make a difference for others and for yourself, I think you're much more likely to love what you do. 100%. 100%. So the last question and the closing question would be, what would you want every listener uh, to know? could be a fact or, or a quote uh, after this, listening to this podcast. So I would say uh, um, not related to the content, the, the specific content we talked about, but I think the point that you just sort of brought up, and that is, um, you know, intensivists work hard there, and, and the nurses and the RTs work really hard. It's high stress, but I think it's really important. You know, we want to take care of patients, but it's also important to take care of yourself. And so burnout, as you pointed out, I think is a big issue. And I think that, that physicians and all this staff in the ICU and in the hospital should be thinking about 
thinking a little bit about themselves as well, you know, making sure they, they don't burn out because it's obviously be much better for them, but quite frankly, it's going to be much better for the patients as well. So I think that uh, enjoy what you're doing, um, get help if you need it, you know, think about the burnout, think about making sure that you're healthy um, physically and psychologically so you can then help your patients as well. Excellent. I think this is a great place to stop. Art, I really want to thank you for your time and be so generous with your expertise. It was a real pleasure to talk with you and hopefully we'll have you again on the podcast to talk about other topics related to critical care. My pleasure. Take care, Sergio. Thanks again for listening to Critical Matters. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Google Play. You can also listen at www.soundphysicians.com podcast.